As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. everybody and this is Nurse Mo and thank you so much for checking back in with the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about IV therapy. So this is one of those things that you don't know what you don't know and once we start talking about all of the information that you need to know for IV therapy you'll realize that this is information you're going to use all the time. So this is appropriate whether you're first semester, second semester, or second med surge course, or maybe you're getting ready to go into your clinicals, um, your fourth semester preceptorship if your school does that, or you're a new grad looking to brush up on some basic information that you will use all the time. So basically, let's start with what is IV therapy? Essentially, it is the practice of instilling fluids and medication into the system via your intravascular access. So it sounds so simple, but really there are a lot of components. So let's talk about how we get this vascular access, the types of vascular access that we have out there. The most common is the peripheral IV. In adults, you will typically see this in the hands and forearms. Occasionally, you'll see one in the upper arm if that's the only access that you have. You'll see the AC, the antecubital space, a lot, but that is a really annoying place to have an IV, though it's the easiest vein to get typically. The patient's going to bend his or her arms, causing the, if they're on a continuous infusion, to cause the pump to beep all the time, which is super annoying. And then bending that arm over time causes the catheter to kink, so it's not going to last that long. And then it'll also clot off really easily because when they bend their arms, then they're not getting any flow, and you can get a little clot on the end. So, though an AC line is easy to get. If your patient comes up from the ED with an AC, it's a great idea to switch that when you get a chance to something that's more comfortable for the patient and that will potentially last a little longer. You may see the external jugular used as a peripheral site. And when that happens, I just want you to be extra careful because At a glance, it will look like a central line, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It will look like a central line placed in the internal jugular, which is a very common type of central line to use. But as we'll talk in a minute, peripheral IVs and central lines are vastly different as to how you can use them. So if the patient has an IV in their neck, you want to confirm if it's central or if it's peripheral. 
and if it is in the external jugular, that is a peripheral IV. So, how will you use a peripheral IV? Basically, for standard fluid administration that does not require a large vein and standard medications that do not require a large vein. So this is great for normal saline, lactated ringers, D5W, antibiotics, pain medication, things like that. For the most part, your non-critical patient can get by just fine with peripheral IVs. So the pros and cons of peripheral IVs, the pros are is that they're easy to get, doesn't really require any advanced training. You can, you know, do it as the bedside nurse. They are very inexpensive compared to other IV types. And if it is a large enough port, you can use it for power injectable, which would be the contrast dye if your patient's going for a contrast scan of some kind. The cons of peripheral IVs used to be that peripheral, peripheral IVs absolutely had to be changed every three to four days to keep infection low. Well, they've been doing a lot of studies on this topic, and actually, as long as the IV is patent, your dressing's clean, dry, intact, and you care for the site well, then infection is pretty low with the peripheral IV. So we'll actually now at the hospital where I work, leave those in for as long as they're patent. I mean, we're not going to leave it in for weeks, but if a patient has a peripheral IV and it's on day six and it works great, we're going to leave it. You cannot use a peripheral IV for every type of medication, so it does have some drawbacks there. You cannot use it for lab draws. And there could be decreased freedom of movement, like I said, with that AC especially. And then if you've got a smaller sized catheter, like a 22 or 24, which I don't really know why you'd see a 24 in adult, but like say a 22, not super suitable for blood, not preferred definitely, and definitely not suitable for a power injectable. So that is the basics of peripheral IVs, when you would use them, why you would use it, what's great about it, and what's not so great about it. Next is the midline catheter, and these are super cool, you guys. So these go in the mid forearm, and they're not a central line, but they're not as short as a peripheral IV. Okay, so they're a little longer, called a midline, because it's a bit longer than the peripheral IV catheter. And what you can use these for is, again, basic fluids, IV antibiotics, IV pain medications, anything that does not require a large vein. So it kind of looks at the insertion site like a pick line, like a peripherally inserted central line, which we'll talk about in a bit, but it's definitely not. You could not put a vasoactive medication through that, for instance. But one of the nice things about a midline catheter, two really great things about a midline catheter, you can keep it in for up to 29 days. Like I said, peripheral IVs, we don't change as routinely as we used to, but you wouldn't keep one in for 29 days, definitely. But a midline, you could. Pretty comfortable because of the location in the forearm. It has a lower infection risk than peripheral IVs, and you can use it for lab draws. Is that awesome or what? So as long as you maintain the midline catheter well with the routine flushing, 
flushing before and after meds, taking really good care of it, it should draw well and you can use it for lab draws. The cons of a midline catheter is that it has to be placed by a specially trained nurse so it's not as accessible for your patient. But if you need one, you can definitely get one and then the IV therapy nurse will, nurse will come by and put that in for you. And then as I mentioned, the pick line, that's the peripherally inserted central catheter. So think about what that means. It's peripherally inserted, but it's central. So it goes in at a periphery, the arm, but is central. So the catheter is very long and it opens up right there in those great vessels. So it's typically inserted above the elbow and that catheter extends all the way to the superior vena cava. So it is a peripherally inserted central catheter. So we use these for long-term fluid and meds. So if your patient is going to be on vancomycin for four weeks or something like that, I don't even know, but long-term antibiotics, they're probably going to get a pick line, especially if they're going to go home and be getting medication administration at home. You can also use a pick line for very powerful medications that require a large vein. This is chemotherapy, vasopressors, inotropes, TPN, 3% normal, not, I say 3% normal saline. It's not normal. Normal saline is 0.9%. I meant to say 3% sodium chloride, which is hypertonic. You would definitely want that to go into a large vein. So those are some of the reasons why you would want to get a pick line. The pros of a pick line is that it can stay in for a long time. It can stay in for months if you need it. It's pretty comfortable. It uh, has multiple lumens. So it might have two ports, maybe three ports, so that you can put all kinds of things in it at the same time. One of the drawbacks of this though is that the more lumens, the higher risk of blood clot formation. You can use a pick line for lab draws. You can draw your labs off of it. You can use the power picks for power injectables. So if you have a pick line you want to make sure is power injectable. Not all of them are, but if you anticipate your patient needing it, definitely ask for a power pick. And the cons, like I said, clot formation. So DVTs kind of common with pick lines. So in my unit, we're trying really hard to cut back on our pick line usage because of infection and clot formation risk and using peripheral IVs more when we can. It has to be placed by a specially trained RN. Again, it's that IV therapy RN. A doctor could do it, but in my hospital, pick lines are placed by the uh, IV therapy nurse. You have to confirm placement before you can use it. So there's two ways to confirm placement with the pick line. You can either have it inserted under ultrasound, and some patients they can't use ultrasound for. And in those patients, you just have to get a quick chest x ray 
to ensure that the catheter is going in the right place and it is indeed centrally located before you would use it. Again, cons, risk for DVT, risk for infection. Next, we have implanted ports. You might also hear these called porticaps. This is another long-term type of vascular access. So you'll have this on the patient's chest wall beneath the skin. And it is going to, again, it's going to provide central access. So all those things that you can do with the PICC line as far as the types of medications, the vasopressors, the inotropes, the 3% sodium chloride, the TPN, those things can go into a porticath. You would use this for your patient who needs long-term frequent medication administration. Commonly, you'll see these used in patients getting chemotherapy. So the pros of porticath is that decreased risk for extravasation, safer administration in that case for things like chemo. It does have multiple lumens, which makes it really convenient when you're running more than one thing at a time. You can use it for blood draws, and some porticaths can accept power injectable. If you're not sure, I find that my IV therapy nurses are a great resource. So if you're not sure if your port can accept power injections, just call the IV therapy nurse. They'll come and check out your port. And the cons are that you have to have it placed and removed under surgery. It is a surgical procedure. And then accessing the port via a needle can be painful for the patient. And depending on where you work, you may be able to do that, but it might be more the IV therapy or infusion nurse that accesses it. And once it's accessed, then you can use it easily. But that initial access might have to be done by someone who does it all the time and knows how to do it. Another type of venous access is the tunneled central venous catheter. This is also placed on the chest wall, and that catheter tip will be in the vena cava. You will use this also for that long-term frequent medication administration or blood products. If you have a patient who's chronically anemic and always going in for blood transfusions, they may have a tunneled central venous catheter, and it is also commonly used for chemotherapy. The pros are that it has a decreased risk of extravasation, and again, that means safer administration of chemotherapy. You can use it for blood draws. Check that you can use it for power injections, but most you can. And the access site is not under the skin like it is in the, ton uh, the port cap, so it's not as painful or painful at all to access. The major con would be it requires surgery for placement and removal. And then we have the standard central line. This is a non-tunneled catheter. And this is what we see the most in my ICU after the PICC lines. So this is typically placed in the internal jugular, I would say would be the most common, followed by the subclavian vein, followed by the femoral vein. So you wouldn't want it in the femoral vein unless you absolutely had to because of the high infection risk in that whole groin area. So mostly you'll see it up there in the neck of the internal jugular or maybe on the chest of the subclavian. We use these to give powerful medications such as vasopressors, chemotherapy, 
Again, the inotropes, the TPN, the hypertonic solutions, all of those things that require a large vessel. You would have a central line in patients who are hemodynamically unstable, requiring massive fluid or blood resuscitation, and you can also use it for continuous hemodynamic monitoring. So those are great. I love them. The pros of them are pretty much can put anything through it. It will have double or triple lumens. I have heard of a quad, but I've never seen a four lumen central catheter. So maybe it's just a rumor, but it would be fantastic because I always need more lines than I have. The subclavian location is probably the most comfortable for the patient. It allows them to move around a little bit better. You can use it for lab draws, SCVO2 monitoring, the power injectables. I would check on that just to make sure that that is the case with the type of catheter that your team uses. And again, that hemodynamic monitoring, like CVP monitoring. The cons are that it has to be placed by either an MD or a specially trained nurse practitioner. So this is an advanced practice kind of role. It does have a higher infection risk. So in my ICU, even though we use these fairly frequently because we do take care of such sick patients, we try to get them out as soon as possible because the infection risk is so much higher. And again, especially that femoral placement. So what you'll see is the patient may come in, get a central line initially because they are crashing, really sick, need levofed or epinephrine or dobutamine, some kind of very powerful medication. And then once they are stabilized, you would probably want to switch that line out. If they've got a femoral, I would definitely ask to either switch it to a different site or once they're over the hump, see if you can get by with a peripheral IV, a midline, or if they're going to be on long-term antibiotics, then getting them uh, to a PICC line. The subclavian placement, not the best for patients who are coagulopathic because it is very difficult to achieve hemostasis at that site. So if they're really bleedy, then I would probably not advocate for it to be placed in the subclavian. And then the jugular placement, though the most common site that we use, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's right there on the neck. The dressings are really hard to keep intact. If your patient's intubated and they've got a lot of oral secretions and you're not just really on top of keeping their mouth clear, those oral secretions will, you know, ooze out and it gets down on the dressing. And so if you've got a jugular placement, you want to keep a really close eye on that dressing. So let's talk just a little bit about what do we really mean when we say central line. So if I was saying it and you weren't 100% sure what I was talking about, then um, basically a central line is any vascular access where the tip of the catheter is going to empty that fluid or that medication into what we consider a central vein. And the superior vena cava is the main vein that we use. Sometimes that catheter tip will go right all the way into the right atrium. And that's okay. That's fine. It's just in some patients, it makes the heart a little ticked off to have something in there. But if your line goes all the way into the right atrium, don't freak out. It doesn't mean you can't use it. It just means you might see some ectopy on the monitor. And, and then when the physician comes by, you can let him or her know, and they may decide to pull back on that line a little bit. So many medications such as 
norepinephrine or levofed cannot really go through a peripheral IV, though you could technically. We do use peripheral IVs for these things when we absolutely have to, but then as soon as we can get a central line, we get it. Um, definitely, TPN can never go through a peripheral line. 3% sodium chloride, like I said, would never go through a peripheral line. So certain meds always have to go through a central line, and that is one of the great benefits of a central line. So again, most central lines are pretty obvious based on where they are located, but that peripheral IV and the external jugular can trip you up, and if you're not really paying attention, then you could make a mistake. So always verify what kind of line it is. And again, a midline catheter could look like a pick if you're not really paying attention. And then there's art lines, so ephemeral line that is, you think maybe it's ephemeral, ephemeral central line, could actually be ephemeral art line and not even venous. So you just want to be careful before you use any of your lines, verify what type of line it is and where it is inserted and where the lumen ends. So you've got your lines placed. Now what are you going to do? Now you're going to take excellent care of your lines. So your main responsibility caring for your lines is you want to reduce the risk for infection and you want to keep them patent for as long as possible. No patient likes to be poked repeatedly because you didn't flush the line for a couple of shifts and now it doesn't work. So different policies probably exist in different locations, but just know that your facility will have probably scheduled flushing for different lines, depending on what kind of line it is and how much you flush it with. And you also want to flush before and after you give any medication through the line. So unless your patient's running continuously with their medications, if you're giving like um, some Lasix or some pain medicine or whatever, you want to flush before and flush after and keep that line really clean. So like for example, pick lines get flushed with 10 mils per lumen. I believe it's three times a day. So you want to really stay on top of those things. So that regular flushing ensures that it remains patent. And then if it does get a little sluggish or difficult to flush, then you know right away and you can do something about it. So what happens with pick lines, especially is if they get these little, little tails of biofilm, blood, whatever, kind of growing on the end. So just know that those things kind of growing around your pick line can really attract bacteria. So another good reason to flush and pay very close attention to any sluggishness or inability to draw blood through that line because then you will intervene and do what we call um, a TPA clearance on the line. So a peripheral line, if it's sluggish, it's probably time to remove it. It's not going to last you much longer and start you a new one. So let's talk about infection risk. How can we decrease infection risk in our lines? So let's start by keeping the dressings clean, dry, and intact. So a peripheral IV that's only in for a few days probably won't require any dressing changes unless the dressing becomes wet or loose um, or soiled in some way. But lines that stay in for 
a longer period of time are going to get routinely changed on a schedule as well as whenever they are not intact, not clean, wet, whatever. So typically your central lines and pick lines will be changed, your dressings changed weekly. I think where I work, it's used to be Sunday was dressing change day, but now we do it per patient seven days based off when they had it placed. So at least every seven days and then whenever it is needing to be placed because it's dirty or wet or not intact, you need to get in there and change lines right away when they are bad, especially again, that that uh, internal jugular line. If that gets loose and that saliva gets down in there, you're asking for some big time problems. So if you are a student and you want to learn how to do a central line dressing change, there will be plenty of opportunities on your critical care rotation to do that. This would definitely be something you would want to do with supervision if your school even allows you to do it. If they don't, then at least get in there and observe. It is a sterile procedure. There's all these rules about you have to wear a mask. If the patient's awake, they have to wear a mask and sterile gloves and the whole bit. Another thing you want to do to in, uh, decrease infection risk is scrub that hub every time you use it. So on our central lines, we're scrubbing for 15 seconds. And then we're letting it dry for about five seconds or so. So very important that you have that dry time, but also very important that you have that scrubbing time. And you're supposed to get in there and scrub it like you mean it. Okay, so we do that. And then we also change out the valves whenever we draw blood. So you want to change those out whenever you draw any blood through your line. And when I say valves, I'm talking about like the end caps. Ours have valves inside them. So that's what I call them. But you may call them something else at your facility. End caps, valves, whatever, autoclaves. You're going to do all of those things to decrease infection risk in your patient. And then the other thing I want to talk to you about just real quick is that clot risk for pick lines is real. So if your patient complains that their arm is red, swollen, aches, you need to get in there and assess it. If that arm looks red, looks warm, looks markedly more swollen than the other, my advice would be to let somebody know right away and stop using the line if you can. Um, and anticipate they may take it out and move it to another site. So what kinds of fluids your patient will be getting? I want to talk about a little bit about fluids and osmolarity and all of that. So depending on your patient's clinical condition, their lab values, what's going on with them, they're going to get different types of IV fluids. So the most basic is normal saline, which is that 0.9% sodium chloride. This is probably the one you'll see the most, but it's definitely not the only one that you will see. So some fluids, depending on their osmolarity, are going to be isotonic, hypotonic, or hypertonic. So as a quick review, you went over this in your AMP class, I know, 
But when we say something is isotonic, what we're saying is that it's pretty closely matching the serum osmolarity of the human body, which is around dish 290 milliosmoles per kilogram, okay? So normal saline has an osmolarity of about 308, so we consider that isotonic. So some of the main IV fluids you will see at the hospital besides normal saline, we might have, so I mentioned 3% sodium chloride. You might also hear it called 3% NS or just 3%. So this has a high osmolarity and it is therefore hypertonic. This is used for patients who are severely hyponatremic or who have cerebral edema. And it is a very, very, very high alert medications that you would want to be very careful when instilling. It only goes through a central line and I believe its max rate per hour is 30 to 50 mils an hour depending on your facility. But just know that this is something that you would never, ever, 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 ever bolus ever in a million years. You would never do that. You would cause severe harm to your patient. Another one that you might see commonly as an example is like D5W, that's dextrose 5% in water. That's considered an isotonic solution. We would use this as basic fluid maintenance for people who maybe are NPO, maybe dropping their blood sugars a little bit. D10 or 10% dextrose in water, that's considered hypertonic, but it's not so hypertonic that you can't put it in a peripheral of IV if you needed to. I would put it in a large vein like the antecubital. I wouldn't put it in a tiny little hand vein in a little old lady. But if you needed to give someone D10, you could give it through the AC and be just fine with that. And typically what we do is that is for patients who need more sugar than the D5 provides. Can you hear my cat in the background? He's very much in need of some attention. So you would use that in patients, for example, if their TPN were to suddenly run out and you didn't have your replacement bag yet, you could hang D10 until you get that other TPN loaded. And that would keep their blood sugar up at the level more or less that the TPN had it at. So they're not having these wild fluctuations in their blood sugar. And honestly, that's just about the only time I ever use D10. Once in a while, I'll use it for a patient in liver failure who is just persistently hypoglycemic. Pretty much that's the only times. So persistent hypoglycemia in the face of liver failure or as an oops, I ran out of TPN. I need to hang something to replace it until I get my next bag. Um, lactated ringers is isotonic. That's basic fluid maintenance or fluid resuscitation. It has various electrolytes in it. A lot of physicians seem to like LR. And you might see that not quite as often as you'll see normal saline, but maybe. Um, let's see, you could also have fluids with potassium added, like NS with 20 milli equivalents of potassium. And we call that NS with 20 or NS with 40 would be uh, normal saline with 40 milli equivalents of potassium. And this is what you would get for your patient who is kind of persistently hypokalemic and you're always chasing their potassium or they're diuresing and losing a lot of potassium. It just helps keep those potassium shifts from being so pronounced. 
So those are just some examples of some fluids that you might have running for your patient. And again, the fluids are going to be chosen based on what's going on with your patient's serum electrolyte values, their fluid volume status. I would say as a general rule, the isotonic solutions are used for just basic fluid maintenance or to get intravascular volume up when they're dehydrated or hypotensive. The hypotonic solutions, we didn't really talk about any of those, but an an example of hypotonic solution would be 0.45% sodium chloride. We also call that half NS, which because normal saline is 0.9, half is 0.45. So we call this half NS. It's hypotonic. And we use this in patients who are hypernatremic, whose sodium levels are too high. So we give hypotonic solutions, maybe for something like that. Or if we're trying to expand the intracellular space. And then those hypertonic solutions like that 3% we talked about, that's going to be given to pull water from the cells. And again, 3% used in severe hyponatremia and cerebral edema. So again, super high alert medications. Be very careful with those. Let's talk a little bit here about what to do when your IV goes south, okay? So you're going to be assessing your IV sites based on your facility's protocol. If I've got something running continuously, especially something that I'm a little suspicious is going to be troublesome, like for instance, let's say my patient is on leave of fed and I don't have central access yet. Maybe I'm waiting for a pick line to be placed and the IV therapy team can't get there for a few hours. I'm going to keep a super close eye on that peripheral IV running that vasoactive medication. But you're definitely going to be assessing your IVs every morning with your initial assessment and then probably at least a few more times that day. Again, assess if your patient starts to complain of any problems with their IV. If they're saying it hurts and they're being legit and they're not just uncomfortable, if the IV actually hurts, it needs to be investigated. So you're going to check the IV for patency. Does it flush? Does flushing cause more pain? If that is the case, most likely your vein is blown and you'll have to change that site. You can't use it. Let's say the IV flushes fine, but the medication that you're instilling causes some pain. So some medications do burn a little bit and they can irritate that vein. For instance, if you're running potassium replacement through a peripheral vein, it's going to hurt. Typically, the big leader bags, like I was talking about the NS with 20 of K or the NS with 40 of K, Those are diluted enough, the potassium is diluted enough in that mixture that it's not bothersome to the patient. But if you're replacing uh, 10 milli equivalents in a 100 mil bag and you're running that through a peripheral IV, it is going to burn. So here's what I do as a trick if I can't get lidocaine added for any reason. Maybe it's the middle of the night and I've paged, but no one's called me back. So I can't get my order changed to potassium with a little lidocaine. And they'll add the lidocaine 
to reduce the pain of the potassium running through that vein. So if I can have that, what I like to do is let's say I've got orders for normal saline to run at 100 mils an hour. And on top of that, I've got an order to replace 10 milli equivalents of potassium at 50 mils an hour. So what I will do then is I will set my potassium up instead of as a straight up piggyback, which means it's going to take over, the pump's going to take over and just run the potassium by itself. That's going to hurt, right? So what I'll do is I'll set up a second pump with the potassium on it and Y site that in with my maintenance fluid so that my total is still 100 mils an hour, which is what my order was for. But that potassium I'm instilling is kind of getting diluted as I run it through. So it doesn't necessarily hurt as bad. So sometimes I'll do that for my patient because I'm nice and I don't want them to hurt. You will also check any dressings when your patient is complaining about their IV bothering them. If the dressing is loose and the IV is kind of wiggling around, that catheter is wiggling around, that can be annoying and that can cause some pain. You also want to check the location of the IV. Again, that antecubital line, it's pretty much not well tolerated because people will bend their arms all the time. Even when you ask them not to, they're going to use their arms to do whatever, brush their teeth, eat, drink, get on their phone, do whatever. So over time, this constant bending of the arm is really irritating to the vein and those IVs can get really sore after a bit. So. If your patient's bending their arm a lot and they've got an antecubital line, do them a favor. It's, I guarantee you they will endure the pain of a one more poke if they can get that IV out of their elbow and move their arm around. So if you can switch it over to a forearm, that is much easier to tolerate. But let's say you've got pain at the IV site and it's red and it's edematous. Okay, so that's that's not good. Something's gone bad there and you absolutely have to intervene. So every now and then the vessel, maybe the vessel gets blown, it loses, loses its integrity for whatever reason. And the fluid or medication that you're instilling is just getting pumped into those surrounding tissues. Okay. Instead of into the vascular space, it's just getting into the tissues. We call that an infiltration. And it's pretty common. It's not the worst thing that could ever happen depending on what you're actually infusing. If it's normal saline and there's a little infiltration, the body will just absorb that. It's fine. You're going to take the IV out and stop using it, of course, but probably not going to harm your patient. But if you are instilling a medication and this happens, then we have an extravasation. And depending on what type of medication it is and the reaction that it has with those sensitive, delicate tissues, your patient could have a lot of pain and even some tissue damage. So if you suspect infiltration or extravasation, you want to stop that IV infusion right away. Leave the catheter in place for now because depending on what was running through it, you may be able to administer an antidote through that catheter into the tissues. Call your pharmacy. Find out if the medication that was running is considered a vesicant something that is harmful to the tissue. And if it is, she or he can look things up and let you know what the antidote or treatment is if one exists. So sometimes you will give that antidote through the catheter. Other times it might be injected into the skin right around there. 
Other times it's applied topically. It just depends on what the antidote is. Um, it might just be that you put heat or cold pack on there. Depends on what it is. So always call the pharmacy and find out what your antidote or treatment is. And then you need to call the doc. So get the information from the pharmacy. Then call the doc and say, hey, um, X medicine has infiltrated, pharmacy recommends whatever as an antidote. Can I get an order for that? And you'll get your orders for whatever antidote you need. If nothing else, you would want him or her to know that there is potential for injury to the patient. Not that I'd call someone at two in the morning to tell them this. That's the sort of thing that can probably wait until morning rounds, as long as the patient's integrity of their limb is not compromised. You will get a lot of information from the pharmacist about what you need to do next. But, and then always, of course, you could always speak to your charge nurse if it's the middle of the night and you're not sure if this warrants a phone call. Maybe it does, depending on what it is. Or maybe it can wait till morning and you can just keep an eye on the site, put a little heat, put a little cold, whatever. So um, definitely just always keeping an eye on your lines and taking any reports of pain and discomfort seriously. So that is just like a basic overview of IV therapy. I hope that it was helpful. And I hope that you are having fun at school and that it's not too crazy right now, depending on if you're listening to this in real time. It's about the third week of March, so you're deep, deep into your semester and probably kind of burnt out right now, and I totally get it. I have been there. So learning about things that you can really apply in clinical, I always found really motivating and kept me excited to go back to clinical the next week. So take this IV therapy knowledge and go into clinical and really get into assessing those IV sites and see what you can learn from your nurse, maybe the IV therapy team, and from any troubleshooting that you need to do. And if you want to get more information about this topic and you have not yet checked out the premium study guides available at straightanursingstudent.com, There is one on IV therapy that covers this information in more detail with some other things in there and little tidbits of information, plus a bunch of other subjects. Go check that out if you are so inclined. And if you just like listening to the podcast, that's great too. I just do us a favor, rate and review so that other people, that just helps us rank better so that other students can find us. So again, thanks so much. You guys have a great day week and hang in there. You are doing fantastic. This podcast is brought to you by straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness 
and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.